you see each section the outline has the at the front the question the answer and the promise and hopefully that'll make it um, make the easy to remember um, but Psalm 15 short psalm a psalm of David the New American Standard says this O Lord who may abide in your tent who may dwell on your holy hill he who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart he does not slander with his tongue nor does evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend in whose eyes a reprobate is despised but he honors those who fear the Lord he swears to his own hurt and does not change he does not put out his money at interest nor does he take a bribe against the innocent he who does these things will never be shaken the question is who may abide in your tent who may dwell on your holy hill the next few verses from verse 2 to about the middle or latter part of verse 5 deal with about 10 or 11 some even would say 12 characteristics of people who can dwell in his or or who can abide in his tent and who can dwell in his holy hill and then the promise is He who does these things will never be shaken. This is a psalm which deals with the characteristics of those who worship God. If we worship God, if we love God, we need to have our character shaped by His character. We will find a similar kind of section if you look in Psalm 24. Psalm 24. In verse 3, verses 3 through 6 of Psalm 24. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and is not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob, Selah. So, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, who may stand in your holy place. One other passage I wanted to deal with you, uh, mention to you at the beginning that does the same kind of thing is in Isaiah 33. Isaiah 33. Now, this idea uh, doesn't begin to the middle of verse 14, but let me just start reading at the first of verse 14. Sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with his continual burning? This is our question. The end of verse 14. 
The answer, verse 15. He who walks righteously and speaks with sincerity, he who rejects unjust gain and shakes his hand so that they hold no bribe, he who stops his ears from hearing about bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking upon evil, he will dwell on the heights, his refuge will be the impregnable rock, his bread will be given to him, his water will be sure. So you see these are all similar passages that speak of the qualities of those who draw near to God. It may be that often in the ancient Near East when one came to a temple to worship, that there was something stated about the qualities necessary in order to come in that God's presence. And this may be the case here. First Chronicles 23, or excuse me, Second Chronicles 23 verse 19 talks about some, excuse me, that is First Chronicles 23. First Chronicles 23 verse 19. No, it's not. Second Chronicles 23 is the reign of Joash. The reason I have a confusion is I wrote down in my notes um, that that was David. And I said, David is going to be in First Chronicles. And Second Chronicles 23 is not David. This is talking about um, Joash acting according to the course of David. And it said he's stationed. So with all that introduction, and with all that, I won't tell you. I, okay, I don't want to blame you, people. But somebody wasn't praying for me to have a ready recollection. I want to just tell you that. Second Chronicles twenty three nineteen. He stationed the gatekeepers of the house of the Lord so that no one would enter who was in any way unclean. So he stationed gatekeepers. They didn't allow the unclean into the temple. How can people come into God's presence? How can they come into God's temple? There was a demand for holiness in His presence. And these instructions reveal the type of person who can dwell in God's holy place. Now, I recognize that this short psalm may raise questions. I want to leave time for this as we come to the end about why it's stated this way. Uh, Does this lead to legalism? If we look at the text this way, does it lead us away from understanding our need of mercy? You may have some of those questions and we may answer. But let's first deal with what we have in the text. Who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Now these two verbs... The first word, abide. Who may abide? This is the New American Standard I'm looking at. I think the ESV, doesn't it have something like sojourn here? 
who may sojourn. This is the word. Sojourn is probably a better translation here because the idea, this is the word that's used. Remember the Old Testament often talks of the alien or the resident alien. This is the verb form of that particular word. Who may abide, who may sojourn in your tent. Now this word was used in the Psalms before. It was used in Psalm 5 verse 4 when the Bible says no evil dwells with you. No evil dwells with you. If no evil dwells with God, this Psalm is asking who may dwell in God's tent. Who may sojourn in God's tent. And then, who may dwell on your holy hill. This particular word, dwell, is a word that is used in these passages. That's Exodus 25, 8, 29, 45, and 46. Exodus 40, 34, and 35 among other places. Those passages speak of God dwelling in the tabernacle. These passages are not talking about man dwelling in the tabernacle. They're talking about God dwelling there. This is a holy tent. This is a holy hill. God dwells there. And because God dwells there, what kind of quality is needed in the humans who dwell there? In the people who dwell there? This is the question. For we consider how great, how awesome, how holy God is. Who may sojourn in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Your holy hill. And again, that phrase holy hill was used about God setting his king up on his holy hill in Psalm 2 verse 6 in Psalm 3 verse 4 God heard his prayer from the holy hill but here are the qualities necessary to sojourn in God's tent to dwell on God's holy hill and one of the things that one writer points out is a lot of these qualities that are mentioned in this text are in other places in the Psalms or in the rest of the Old Testament attributed to God. That as worshipers of God, we manifest the character of God. The first thing is He walks with integrity. Now, how does the ESV translate that? Blamelessly. Here in 15.2, He walks blamelessly. Let me first make my point that I stated just a moment ago. That sometimes these words are used to describe God's character. In Psalm 18, verse 30, as for God, His way is blameless. Same word. God is blameless. And so those who sojourn in His tent are to be blameless. So it's used in 1830 of God. It's used in 19.7. The law of the Lord is perfect. Restoring the soul. 
It's usually the Word of the Lord. God is blameless. His Word is blameless. And so if we want to be acceptable to Him, we're to walk blamelessly. Can you think of people in the Bible who are said to live that way? To walk blamelessly? That term is used quite frequently. I say quite frequently a few times. You said something, Christy. Job is said to live that way. In Job 1 1, Job 1 8, Job 2 3, he lived and walked blamelessly. Uh, Noah is, that word is used of him in Genesis 6 9. It's used of Abraham in Genesis 17 1. If we want to sojourn in God's tent, if we want to dwell on His holy mountain, we walk with integrity. We work. We walk blamelessly. The next word that's used to describe us is we work righteousness. Now, there are different ways to to express the idea of work or do. In Hebrew, or different ways. But the word that's used here with working righteousness or doing righteousness is the same word that's used back in 14.4, which talks, though, about workers or doers of iniquity. In contrast to those people who work and do iniquity, the one who wants to sojourn in God's tent, that one works righteousness and does righteousness. And then in verse 2, he speaks truth in his heart. A lot of these qualities that are described, that are necessary to dwell in God's tent, deal with qualities about the tongue. Now my guess is that among the type of people who come here, There are more of us that have trouble controlling our tongue in some of the ways this psalm talks about than we do in being faithful to our husband or wife. It's easy to fall into. And it can happen sometimes without knowing. But the Bible says, you speak truth in your heart. Look at 12.2. 12.2. They speak falsehood to one another with flattering lips and with a double t- heart they speak. May the Lord Lord cut off all flattering lips. In contrast to these who speak falsehood to one another, here are people who speak truth in their hearts. Did you notice And again, I'm trying to break this down. And if you have a question at any point, feel free to ask. Short psalm, we have no problem covering it in a short time tonight. But notice that verse 2 talks about three things that are necessary to sojourn in God's house. You walk blamelessly, you work righteousness, you speak truth. Verse 3 talks about things we do not do if we abide 
in His tent or sojourn in His tent or dwell on His holy hill. We do not slander with the tongue. We do not do evil to our neighbor. We do not take up reproach against a friend. These are things we do not do. Verse 2, three things we are to do positively. Verse 3, three things we are not to do. Not to slander with a tongue. Do any of you have a reading that is substantially different from that in any of your translations? Uh, yes, Mary. Backbite with the tongue. The word, the word actually that's used here, it mentions the tongue, but the word that's used that translates slander uh, is a form of the word foot. Now, what's interesting about that? What's interesting about that is the first positive statement is about walking blamelessly. And so there's a positive statement about walking blamelessly and there's a there's a um, statement here about not slandering, not going around on foot with your tongue. You remember the old commercial that talked about let your fingers do the walking. That was a yellow page commercial, wasn't it? Okay. These people are letting their tongue do the walking. Their tongue's going all around. And it is saying all kinds of things. And it's interesting, this word is used like about six times, and and I can send you the notes for this. Six times in Genesis 42, when Joseph accuses his brothers of spying out the land. You've come in here to see the weakness and to go tell it to everybody else. But the Bible tells us the righteous man does not slander with his tongue. Now, there's no rhyme or reason a lot of times to why I'm writing certain things on the morning, not others. Because you know every word that comes from here is important. You know that. And in all of it, you're accountable for on the test. But here in 15... Verse 13, verse 15, verse 3, does not slander with his tongue. I looked up that word tongue, and these are the th- places it's been used previously in the book of Psalms. It's been used four times. In Psalm 5, verse 9, Psalm 5, verse 9, they flatter with their tongue. Psalm 10, verse 7. Under his tongue is mischief and wicked. And then the word tongue is used in Psalm 12, verses 3 and 4. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips... The tongue that speaks great things. In verse 4, Who have said with our tongues we will prevail. Our lips are, are our own. Who is Lord over us? What do you notice about the tongue in each of those passages? What do you see? 
Good thing? Bad thing? The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity, as Micah references. But the point, the tongue is always used negatively to this point. It always speaks of the destruction that the tongue brings. And this people who want to sojourn in his tent dwell on his holy hill we do not slander with our tongues we don't imitate the destructive thing that the world says we don't do that the Bible says by your words you will be justified or by your words you will be condemned Matthew 12, 36 and 37. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor. Does not do evil to a neighbor. And there's a word play. Those words are similar in Hebrew. But the Bible tells us not to do evil to a neighbor who is living at peace with us. In Proverbs 3, verses 27 and 28. Don't do evil to the neighbor who is living at peace with us. You do not slander with your tongue. You do not do evil to a neighbor. You do not take up a reproach against a friend. Now, In the passage that Micah alluded to earlier in James, James talks about with our tongue, we bless our God and Father. And we curse men who are made in the likeness of God. He said, does the same fountain send forth salt and bitter water at the same place? When we do that, We're acting totally inconsistently and inconsistent with the way nature even operates. The one who wants to sojourn in God's house and to dwell on God's holy hill doesn't slander with his tongue, doesn't take up a reproach against his neighbor. Now, the fact that the first element in verse 3 and the last element in verse 3 deal with the tongue... How are we most likely to do evil to a neighbor? Maybe not by doing him overt harm, but simply speaking evil of him. In verse 4, In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. This is true of all of us. This is particularly true of younger people. Who your friends are and who you're attracted to as friends says a world about you. Who are you drawn to? Who are who are you kind of turned off by? Who are your heroes? Who are your heroes is another way to say it. 
Exactly. Who do you look up to and respect? Who do you want to emulate? And here, the Bible talks about those who live in disregard of God. They are despised. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't want to treat them in a proper way, that we don't want to change them from an enemy to a friend, that we wouldn't rejoice in converting them. But it does mean we don't approve of what they're doing and we don't seek to run to the same excess of riot to which they run, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. Now think about it this way, young people. You have someone that is really respect or, or not respected, but but everybody thinks they're cool. Everybody thinks they're what's happening. They're funny. Uh, they're easy to be around, but they don't care anything about God. But you have someone who can't quite get it all together, and who is not all that cool. But he sincerely or she sincerely cares about God. Who are you going to be attracted to? From those of us who are older, we could apply the same thing to ourselves. I have been amazed, as I have sometimes seen over the years, people who had money and influence walk into a small setting where they were completely... You know, not at home. The, the people weren't generally around them. And how everybody just drops everything to flock to them. Are they doing that to try to help that person? Or to somehow think that person can help me? So older people, we do the same thing. Sometimes that younger people do. One that can sojourn in God's tent and dwell in God's holy hill is one in whose eyes a reprobate is despised and who honors those who fear the Lord. And he swears to his own hurt and does not change. The Bible says when you make a vow, don't go back on it. Now, I am not going to try, so please don't ask me this question. I'm not going to try to answer what Jephthah should have done in Judges 11. Judges 11. Um, some have made the distinction between what Jephthah does and what this psalm talks about. Is Jephthah's vow was not just to his hurt but to somebody else's hurt. Whoever is first, and it can be translated that way, whoever is first out of my house, I'll sacrifice them to the Lord. But we swear to our own hurt. What if we make a promise? Not thinking, not being careful. We make a promise. We say we're going to do something. And that ends up Costing us money, time. The one who sojourns in God's holy tent, who dwells on his holy hill, 
does what he says. He swears to his own hurt. He does not change. When Jesus said, let your yea be yea and nay be nay, and I'm quoting King James there, Matthew 5, verse 33, Jesus is just talking about the fact that we are people who keep our word and do what we promise. When we say something, can people take that for granted that we're going to do it? That's what this psalm's talking about. The one who sojourns in God's house, in God's tent, swears to his own hurt, does not change. He does not put out his money at interest. Okay? Can you take that verse to the local bank? And I think we should have looked for a bank that would not charge interest. On a church building. Understand this that in Israel you did not borrow money to open up a new restaurant with the prospect of making a whole lot of money. When you borrowed money, it was because you were poor. And the person who loaned you money was loaning you money. Um, not in hope of making money, but helping you out in time of need. We find sometimes in the ancient Near East, the the law code of Hammurabi mentions a 20% interest rate. If you borrow $100, you pay back $120. Some places in the ancient Near East had a 50% interest rate. That compounds the problems of the poor even more and so the righteous man was said not to put out his money at interest and what happened if somebody Israelite owed you money and lo and behold seven years go by what happens then debt was forgiven sometimes when you loan money you were loaning it with the anticipation you probably wouldn't get anything back But he does not put out his money at interest. And there are a lot of passages that deal with that. Did Israel ever violate that, by the way? Can you think of a passage where Israel ever violated that? Nehemiah 5, yes. They seem to have violated it. And Nehemiah becomes very angry at them. In verse... Five, also the one who sojourns in God's tent, who dwells in his holy hill, does not take a bribe. He does not take a bribe. He doesn't change what he would decide, a decision, depending upon who has the most to pay him in a certain circumstance. He does not take a bribe against the innocent. Now, you may count those up as 10 or 11. Uh, one of the writers who was really objecting to how many people divide these up as 10, he said the people who are doing that aren't counting consistently. Sometimes they're counting every line, like in verse 2, as a separate thing. And then sometimes they're counting uh, two lines together as one, like in the case of the first of verse 4. But nonetheless, we all still have the same text 
in front of us. But the Bible says, he who does these things will never be shaken. Now, I definitely want to write this up here from this in 15.5 about being shaken. Do you remember the use of this word back in chapter 10? In chapter 10, the wicked said to himself, in verse 6, I shall not be moved. It's not the same. Let's see if it is the same word. I think it is the same word. But it's definitely the same idea in 10 verse 6. I will not be moved. The wicked is saying, I'm never going to be shaken. In 13 verse 4, the enemies of the psalmist were rejoicing when he was shaken. But this verse says, if you do these things, as Saul asked, you will never be shaken. Does that mean we're never going to have problems in life? Obviously, that is not the case. Because we will. And sometimes our enemy will even rejoice at those problems, believing that our foundation has been shaken. I think Peter Craigie in his commentary said it well here. The psalmist, the writers of this book, were constantly shaken by their experiences of oppression, by their experiences of life. And that is why they pour out their grief to God. But only their only hope of transforming these shaken moments into moments of confidence and moments of praise lay in their putting their trust in the God who is unshakable. The point is, you're ultimately going to stand if you set your life on this foundation. Now, I remember several weeks ago, John was about to go on vacation. He was afraid he was going to miss Psalm 15. And uh, and I said, well, I'm going to be gone too, so we're not going to have class. Uh, I didn't ask you any more about that, John, but why was this psalm so special to you? Why did you want to go ahead and testify? Well, it's one of a few of the early psalms that I had memorized. And so I think because of that, it it has come to have special meaning. But the whole idea uh, of of verse 1 about being in the presence of God and and thus having relationship, having that closeness is just a really special thought to me. Yeah, I love I love the statement by a man named Dobbs, who said that heaven is not the place where we find God, but God is the place where we find heaven. And I know that's a that's a thinker. Yeah, you have to have yeah. to work that over in your head. But I think mm-hmm. we all think about going to heaven mm-hmm. so we can be with God and. The reality is, is that being with God is what makes heaven heaven. Yes, it is not the street of gold or the gates of pearl. But without, in the most favorable setting, heaven is not heaven without God's presence. And I, and I do, one thing I love about the psalm is it tells us don't take for granted coming to His presence. This is a privilege that is beyond belief. 
that we are able to worship and assemble openly. And this is a privilege that many in our world do not have. I can remember years ago hearing Alan Malone, he was talking about going to Indonesia to preach. He had preached in China a lot. He preached in Vietnam. And he also preached in Cambodia. I think Max was with him there. But he went to he went to Indonesia and preached. And he talked about some Christians that he'd met. And just a few years before, in this area, Christians had sought to evangelize this area, at least people who would describe themselves that way, and they were murdered. And he said, these Christians are still intent on evangelizing this area. And he made the statement, if you can remember when you're going to worship on Sunday morning, even just one time, to pray for these brethren that they may have the boldness to come and assemble. Do it. We are so blessed to not live in those circumstances. And we pray for, and we need to pray for strength for those who do. But let us not take it for granted. It is a profound thing to come into His presence, to abide, to to sojourn in His tent, to dwell in His holy hill. What other thoughts or questions do you have about that psalm? Anything? Brad? Um, so the, the first question reminds me of the who can stand question. Yes. This is softer, right? Who can sojourn and dwell with God rather than who can who can stand? But even some of the, the verses that you shared that were similar had that same you know um, overtone of, of this burning but uh, consuming fire. Yes. Who can dwell? Yes. Uh, or stand? Um, and then it just uh, that I guess kind of got me thinking of um, just the Psalm one, the tree planted by the, the water, um, and doing all of those things. Uh, you'll be able to dwell with God. You'll you'll be fruitful, and and that kind of reminded me of Second uh, Peter one. Uh, mm-hmm. If you have all these qualities and abound, you'll, you'll be neither ineffective or unfruitful. Okay, very good. We can. One writer said we can go to two extremes, and I think we see these two extremes in the world about us. We can go to the extreme of so stressing, so emphasizing God's holiness that none can dare approach Him in prayer and worship. If moral perfection is required, none of us qualify. Now, realistically, are there many in our world that say that today? I don't know that that's common. I did run into some street preachers in the Tampa area and talk with them a while. 
who were preaching a message pretty similar to that, I have to say. Uh, I talked to them and we brought up baptism and they read. And I was so stunned. And then other things we started disagreeing um, about. But the point, there are a few that may emphasize God's holiness without God's mercy to such a degree that we say, why, how can any of us come into His presence? I think more common in our society is we stress so much God's mercy and God's acceptance to the exclusion of His holiness that we find these words strange. But which are we going to take? Are we going to stress His holiness? Or are we going to stress His mercy and acceptance? This is not an either or situation. This has got to be a both and situation. It's got to be. Because all of them are revealed in the same Scripture. While we come just as I am, we come begging His mercy, begging His forgiveness. We are not to leave that way. We are to be transformed by His presence, shaped by His Word. We are to be changed of who we are. We come to Christ and we bury the old man of sin. But we don't get up and run back to what we just buried. So we find those same principles throughout the Psalms, throughout the Bible. And get what Brad is saying in bringing up Second Peter chapter 1. There is a certain type of life that we are to live. There's a certain kind of people that we are to be. Now, if we followed each of these logically, though, and it may be that we're doing pretty well with these, if we pressed walking blamelessly too strongly, we could get to feeling pretty guilty. May there also be in this an acknowledgement that when we come before God, there is inherently in that a cry for mercy and forgiveness. After all, Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3 that we talked about last week, is quoted in Romans 3 to emphasize that all have sinned. We've all sinned. We all fall short of His glory. We all need His mercy. We all need His grace. But we don't just keep living the way we did. We need both of these things. We need to understand them. We need to live them. We need to practice them. And there are other mistakes that people make with this passage. People sometimes make the mistake, oh, you notice here, he doesn't say anything about sacrifice. What God really wanted in the Old Testament was not sacrifice. He wanted you to live ethically. He wanted both, didn't he? I mean, we've seen the first seven chapters of Leviticus were written for a purpose. Let me write down some passages that I would encourage you to read that I think fit very well with Psalm 15. And people are being rebuked 
who are going to the temple and who are worshiping at the temple, but they are not living and giving their whole life in devotion to God. In Isaiah chapter 1, 10 through 17, in Jeremiah 7, you can look at the whole chapter, but particularly verses 1 through 15, you see this idea. I think this is the idea in Micah 6 and verse 6 through 8 with what shall we come before the Lord and bow before the God Most High? Um, he was, and it tells us uh, to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. Amos 5, 21 through 24, the people were going to the temple, they were engaged in worship, but they were not practicing justice and righteous to their fe- righteousness to their fellow man. They were cheating them in business. And then thinking their worship was acceptable. So, if you write down all those passages, I think they'll really resonate with you as being very much like what we just studied. Any any other thought or any other question? Yes, Boyd. I, I think one of the reasons that I love this psalm so much is because uh, not just Bible characters that we know about who lived like this. But people that we've met over the years, yeah, we've seen these kind of characteristics in that we can see, them. and yeah. this may go along with what you have just been talking about. There are people that we know that live like yeah. us. We can live like that as well. Exactly. I think another reason, and I think it's a good comment, that when we see people live this out, it's a motivation to us. I think another reason people like this psalm and people may memorize the psalm, like John mentioned earlier, there's not a metaphor in Psalm 15. I mean, it's just straightforward. I mean, it, the old phrase, it says what it means, it means what it says. I mean, there it is. And um, But we've come to the part of the class where we talk about Jesus a little bit. Now, this is not easy because Jesus is perfect and never sins. What are we going to do and apply to that? First of all, the very fact that Jesus is perfect is Jesus can dwell with God. And He always has and he himself is God, according to John 1 in verses 1 through 3. He was in the beginning with God, and he was God. And Hebrews 7, verse 26, talks about him being holy and pure and undefiled, separate from sinners. So we could look at Jesus being a fulfillment of the psalm in that respect. Another way we could look at Jesus as a fulfillment of the psalm is the Bible talks about the firm foundation in 15 verse 5. He who does these things will not be shaken. It's kind of like what Jesus said about His teaching. If one hears His teaching and does not obey it, He is like the person who builds His house on the sand. And when the storm comes, it washes him away. It washes the house away. But the one who hears his teaching and does it is one who is building on the rock, a solid foundation. And when the storm comes, his house will not be shaken. 
in effect. So you could make the comparison to the teaching of Jesus. Now, I don't know the way to best say this. Not because it is something you're going to disagree with, but what's the best way to say what I'm about to say? In this psalm, Jesus experiences some things we are never to do. We are never to do. What do I mean by that? The word reproach that's used in verse 3, he takes up a reproach We are not to take up a reproach against a friend. Those words are used in Psalm 22, 6, Psalm 31, verse 11, Psalm 69, in verse 7, 9, 10, and even beyond that, verse 19 and 20. I think about five times. In Psalm 69. Now you tell me what's particularly striking about that combination. Psalm 22, Psalm 31, Psalm 69. Brad, you're shaking your head. They're all ones that Jesus quotes from the cross. And these are the, these are the Psalms that Jesus quotes from the cross. They're messianic. And Jesus, those things that should never be done by a man who wants to dwell in God's house... The perfect one who fulfills all these words experienced that treatment. He experienced that treatment. And not only that, but the word despised, which is used in Psalm 15, in verse 4, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised. That talks about legitimately Opposing those who disobey God. Jesus experienced that kind of treatment in Psalm 22, verse 6. Same verse from Psalm 22, as we just mentioned. And in Psalm 53, verse 3, He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised and we did not esteem Him. Jesus was reproached. Jesus was despised. And look at verse 5. Nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. That word innocent is used at least twice in the New Testament. I don't know if it's used anywhere else. It's used in Matthew 27, 4. In Matthew 27, 24. One is Judas throwing down the money and said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. The other is Pilate saying that Jesus is innocent. I am in, or he said he's innocent of this man's blood, but obviously implying that Jesus too is innocent. Now you know, let me be careful and explain this. When I say this word being used in the New Testament, the word that was used in the Greek translation, when that word is used in the in the New Testament, But I want to tell you something else that I really found interesting. This word 
Christy or Isaiah, please take a picture of this because I I didn't arrange them in this order of my notes. And I, and I like the way I'm arranging them here better than the way I arranged them in my notes. Okay? But verse, a fourth way is that word blameless. We talked about it in verse 2. The man who walks blamelessly. Now again, we're talking about in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Do you know how that word blameless is used in the New Testament? It is used in Hebrews 9.14 and in 1 Peter 1.19 of the sacrifice of Christ. The sacrifice of Christ. Christ was blameless. He was an unblemished lamb offered up. So it is a word that's used for the sacrifice of Christ. Now, what I'm about to say, I found particularly helpful for something else we were discussing just a moment ago. In Ephesians 5, 27... Colossians 1.22 this is used of Christian. Now in both of those passages Ephesians 5 and Colossians 1.22 how are we made blameless? In Ephesians 5 in verse 25 husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. How is the church, how are we holy and blameless? Only because we're sanctified by the blood of Christ. That we're washed by the word, but we are made holy and blameless. My point is that this very use of this particular word, blameless in the New Testament, indicates that we can only stand in his presence, the connection Brad made earlier, by the blood of Christ. We can only be blameless by His blood. That's the same context of Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1 in verse 22. And that picks up in the middle of an idea. But it says, Yet now He has reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. When you look at this psalm, this is what I'm saying. And I hope I've expressed this clearly. You look at this psalm in light of all of Scripture. You don't have any problem thinking. This psalm teaches self-righteousness. There's no problem with that. Because you look at the words, you examine this in the whole context. And you see, we are made blameless by His sacrifice. Who may abide in His tent? Who may dwell in his holy hill? Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. 
all the temple was intended to be. Jesus said in John 2, verses 19 through 22, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They said, we've been building this temple 46 years and you're going to build it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus is the temple that replaces the Jerusalem temple. He is the place where God and man meet in fellowship. And that question, who may sojourn in his house? Who may dwell on his holy hill? Isn't that kind of the discussion that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman? Our fathers say, this John 4, beginning with verse 19, our fathers say that we worship in this mountain. But you say we're to worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, salvation is of the Jews. The answer to that question is that you should worship in Jerusalem. But the hour is coming and now is. That worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. The point is that things are changing. The temple is not going to be located in Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem. The temple where God and man will dwell together is in Jesus. And you dwell in God's house by being in fellowship with Him. So these are some things that I thought of in connection. And you all have added some good points afterwards that I have added to my notes. So I appreciate your thought. Even if you don't share them right now, even if you're contemplating them right now and want to share them tomorrow night, you know, I'm willing to. I'm willing to listen, and I've gotten some good ideas from you all in that respect. What What else? Anything, Micah? Could, could you see Jesus as the holy hill of Isaiah two? Uh, perhaps uh, that all nations will come into it. Come yeah, and then you see it in. Yes, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. I'm not going to go into it right now, but it, this is this is for Isaiah, who's mocking me about this just today. I think that Isaiah two. This is one of those passages, Isaiah. <laughs> fulfillment is deeper and richer okay and so there are a lot of levels there but yes in Jesus we see a fulfillment of that and I think it anticipates an even greater fulfillment in heaven as as all people from all nations of all time are gathered together so okay anything else thank you all for coming we got a consistent crowd that comes and, and young people, thank you guys for coming. I know I single you out sometimes, uh, and it's not to, to do damage to you, but to help you. Um, and uh, God bless you. Thank you for coming. And as we, uh, Tyler wants to is, uh, lead us in a prayer. Tyler will lead us in a prayer, then we'll have Brad sing the song for us.